Hello and welcome to the eTalking podcast from Motion E, the place to go for news and opinion about Formula E, electric vehicles and sustainable transport. I'm Stuart Garlick and on today's edition of the eTalking podcast we're talking to Poppy McKenzie-Smith, the motoring journalist from the UK who has uh, plenty of opinions on things like the Tesla Cybertruck, the Mustang Mach-E and other electric road cars that have come out recently, so we'll talk to her about that. For more content, go to motione.org. If you'd like to subscribe to Motion E on Patreon, it's simple to do, and for $1 a month or more, you can get access to exclusive articles, plus plenty of other bonus features. So just go to patreon.com and search for Motion E. And um, Poppy, welcome to the podcast. Uh, first, first time caller, um, sometime listener, I think. So, um, yes, that's it. so uh, you you write for well uh, many organs, uh, including the esteemed Daily Telegraph. Is that right? Uh, yes, it is. So that's uh, the, the sort of main outlet at the moment, um, writing on all different things. Last big piece I had published was on uh, the Acuria Cost team, which was one of the pieces I'm most proud of, actually. But yeah, it includes some uh, more exciting things like driving McLarens and some less exciting things like writing about French petrol riots. Hmm. So the Acuria Cost team, is that the, the original sports car one with Jaguars or the one with the touring cars in the 90s? Um, well, there in lies a tale. Um, so my focus was on the kind of the glory days of the 60s. Um, and yeah, with the C types and the D types and all that. But then I did mention, well, I alluded to the fact that it never quite lived up to its former glories, that the Le Mans days were unbeatable. And that got me in a bit of hot water because uh, some people who were still involved with the team felt that that wasn't fair. Mm. And I had so glossed over their modern history, which I could see their point. Um, but, you know, it's that they do still do a lot of racing. They're still ac- active, but, you know, they've not won them all. So it's, you know, in my eyes, I think it really, it, it did peak in the 60s, which is fine. It's not negative. It's not inherently negative thing to have achieved a lot in history and not be continuing to do so now. You know, times have changed. So and this is something I didn't know. Um, so the Acuriacos of the 90s was the same organisation as the one that ran the D-types? Yeah, absolutely. Same same company, just uh, under different ownership, different leadership. And mm-hmm. the guy who's running it now, um, I think, was involved. Oh, he's, he's certainly from Edinburgh as well, was involved or was a great fan of it when he was a, a kid at school in Edinburgh. So it's um, there's a bit of continuity there. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's running as a modern racing team. It's, it's just a very different kettle of fish. So I wasn't trying to compare the two. I was just saying that, you know, these were... The, the glory days of Le Mans in the 60s, and it's just slightly less glamorous now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we were talking previ- the previous podcast to Neil Hudson, the touring car journalist, and he was mm-hmm. uh, he, he was talking a little bit about the super touring era because it's, it's one of the eras that uh, um, first captured my attention in terms of motorsport eras. But um, David Leslie in that blue car with the white cross um, beating the works voxels in a privateer voxel was... I think something that probably wouldn't happen very much in modern motorsport. No, not at all. I mean, the the privateer manufacturing divide, I just think, is growing exponentially. You know, people 
just can't really afford to 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 take it up now even if you're just looking at it from a driving point of view you know the toto wolf said this was a couple of years ago to be fair that he estimated it cost about a million quid to take a driver from karting all the way up to f1 standard so think about that in terms of setting up a whole racing team like all the people you're paying all the things you're designing all the logistics like it's it's a prohibitively high cost now so the idea of privateers coming in you know just having a go and giving it a bash it's just seems to be ever more distant which is a shame because that's what made it a bit more fun i suppose well absolutely um uh, hazel southwell the uh, journalist from inside electric uh, was saying recently that to, ru- to to run a formula two driver um, a team will require two million pounds uh, up front essentially now that, that, that's a crazy amount of money when you think how um Going back only uh, 20 years, Christian Horner was running himself in Formula 3000 on a fraction of that. Yeah, it, it it's just, I suppose also now the other team, well, in terms of spectacle and what the punters want, we've come to expect such a high level of not just of driving performance, but of, of fanfare and marketing and launches and all this kind of stuff that it does become an exclusive uh, sorry, an increasingly elite group of people who have sort of endless pockets of money but then i suppose in stuff like formula e there's a couple of pri- or sort of privateer groups in there's hmm. they're not um, is it venturi is well of- so um venturi um are a manufacturer they're, they're a tiny niche manufacturer of monaco but um so i i'd say the smallest teams in formula e probably venturi uh dragon and dragon. You, you you could argue neo 333 although they're backed by one of china's biggest ev companies so uh, oh wow okay yeah i i mean but uh, formula e is moving away from the privateers um towards manufacturers now and that's yeah so- something i'm a little sad about actually yeah absolutely i agree because i think part of what made it interesting as a series when it first launched was the fact that it was a bit like the old days and you know these are the regulations and we're going to make it about diversity and inclusivity and now they feel like oh we've got Jaguar on board and we're getting all these big names so let's just go the way of everything else and it's just if it just turns into another F1 I think it'll be a real a real shame actually because I mean I vaguely follow F1 now but to me it's it's lost an awful lot of the interest and, and glamour that it used to have. I, I think it's one of my least favourite kind of motorsports at the moment. Well the, the problem with F1 is that uh, you've got uh, manufacturer teams and then manufacturer B teams essentially at the moment. So, yeah exactly. Um, so so the, the, the only team that's been able to um, maintain a modicum of independence is uh, well you could argue Racing Point has but, but, but Williams essentially and they're hanging around the back of the field so uh, one, one hopes that Formula E will uh, maintain that sort of parity of performance so that teams that teams on a, on a lesser budget can can continue to challenge it certainly happened up to now but hopefully it continues like that way yeah absolutely so it becomes about uh, a, a display of driving dominance rather than anything else i went to the the paris um grand prix earlier this year the e the sorry oh, cool. um and it was fantastic, but I'd learned so much about how they do try and keep it as level a playing field as possible. So even down to the tyres that they can only change them, you know, X many times in the season. And um, yeah, it's really interesting that they are they were genuinely taking steps to make it enjoyable and fun to watch rather than just who's spending the most money. 
Well, that's fantastic, and um, it, it's good. It's good that you were taken by Formula E in that sense, because um, m- many journalists um, who um, you know come come from a background of loving fast cars with loud engines don't enjoy okay. the EV side of things. Um, has it taken you a bit of adaptation, as it has me? Absolutely. I think what's interesting, it's definitely more interesting to watch live than it is uh, on TV, because I think what I found very weird, so I was expecting to be completely silent, but you can actually hear quite a lot because you can hear the sounds that the cars themselves are making, so the creaking, the brakes, the tyres, it's not just all completely drowned out by the engine noise. You can hear a bit more about the mechanics of the car and how it's moving around the track, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, it is really weird to see these cars going around and not just hearing the wailing engines at the same time. Um, so yeah, it was good fun. It was really, really interesting, really enjoyable. I like the fact that because of the small size, A, I love the fact it was in a city. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Just really changes it in terms of access for people. And it's, yeah, that, I thought that was fantastic. And it's a beautiful circuit. But also the fact that the, the pit lanes were open for walks and it was so much more open than any thought of any sort of f1 is where even if you've got a platinum pass you find out that there's a diamond pass level above that and you're constantly <laughs> being asked to show this swing badge and this lanyard and it's always like, oh, i'm sorry sir you can't come in here whereas at the formula e everywhere was open to everyone pretty much there was one kind of corporate hospitality bit which i th- jaguar mind for setup but that was it the rest of it was just you know come and go as you please meet the drivers look at the cars it was it was great in terms of getting a newer audience interested um yeah and i think the drivers are different in um, in those terms to f1 drivers as well i um i i know that lewis is making an incredible effort to be open to anyone in terms of posing for selfies making videos because he loves social media he's from that generation yeah. but uh so some of the older f1 drivers from the sort of senna Prost generation were quite closed weren't they well very much so and i think they became because there were there were fewer options i suppose for people to be watching and the cult of celebrity was so different in that there wasn't twitter so we couldn't see what they were having for lunch they they did become kind of almost deified especially senna you know he was mm. just became a god in brazil and throughout the rest of the world so i suppose their attitudes towards themselves must have changed as well if if you're constantly surrounded by people saying you're fantastic you're fantastic we love you then you're probably going to start thinking yourself so i think i, I don't know also, I suppose racing drivers are, in their very nature, quite strange. You know, they're incredibly competitive, incredibly driven people. So to then put them in the limelight, some of them love it, some of them hate it. But I think they're always going to be slightly eccentric characters, I suppose. Yeah, but do you think it's something about this uh, this kind of millennial stroke Gen Z generation that we've got now that uh, makes them more open to standing in front of a camera and or a, and or a voice recorder just because uh, that's their life, because they film themselves on smartphones and because they're used to it? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it's a bit like kids. You see tiny kids now these days who know exactly how to use an iPhone. Like, you'll see a three-year-old just tapping away. So, again, yeah, with things like social media, given some of the drivers are, what, like 20, 21 years old, Mm. they've never really known a world without it. So, yeah, it's second nature to them. And and not only that, they realise how powerful it can be in growing their image and, you know, interacting with their fans and making sure that they are always uh, the front of, you know... (laughs) front of people's minds absolutely 
So um, I, I wanted to talk to you as well about road cars because um, I, I know that yeah. um, a substantial part of your work is writing and talking about road cars. So uh, thought exactly. it'd be fun to go through a few of the developments in uh, road EVs recently. Um, I, I should probably de- declare an interest, which is that you do do some work for Ford, but uh, I do, yeah. Yeah, but we talked before the podcast, and I I know that you're going to be honest and upfront about what you think about the cars because you know um, what other way is there to be, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we don't want to. I'm um, don't worry. I won't just be singing their praises all the time. <laughs> Love the blue oval as I do. Well, um, I, I'd love to talk about Ford versus Ferrari, actually, and um, oh. um, and um, it's uh, uh, what what we learned from a fictionalised film about how Ford works, because uh, uh, that that will come up in a moment when we talk about the Mustang. But uh, first, let's get on to the Tesla Cybertruck, because that is. Uh, probably what some people who've read the description to this podcast will be clicking um, on us for. So, um, first of all, let's describe the Tesla Cybertruck. It's essentially Tesla's attempt at making a pickup truck look as much as possible like a 1980s science fiction spaceship, isn't it? Yeah, that's kind of the impression I've got. It looks like it's been made out of the leftover bits from a Lego kit that you've not quite managed to finish. (laughs) Um, You know, some people love it. At least it's bold. That's the one thing I'll say for it. In a world where cars are becoming increasingly homogenous and you can't tell a Mercedes from a Ford or a BMW and it's at least it's kind of creative. It's out there. It is a very interesting design, whether you love it or hate it. It's it's an interesting design. Um, there, there was some discussion on the Joe Rogan podcast recently. He had someone on um, who was a bit of a Tesla critic, and uh, this 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 bloke was saying that um, he felt that um, it was dishonest somehow to roll out a prototype and say this is what you'll be getting if you put your money down because that hasn't been decided. Uh, w- would you agree with that, or would you say that people who invest in Tesla through putting that down their deposit, that's priced in for them and they know what they're getting? Uh, yeah, I think slightly the latter. I mean, if it were, um, say, Nissan had come out with something like that and just said, oh, you can put money down if you want, I, I think people would be much more sceptical and would say, well, we don't know what we're going to get, we don't know what the delivery times are, all of this. But with something like Tesla, the, the people who are actually going to buy one of those Cybertrucks, yeah, they're not particularly concerned about money. They are, I mean, not that they're the most expensive cars, judging by the pricing, but regardless, they're... For them, it's about putting money into a belief. They believe in Elon Musk. They genuinely think he's this sort of messiah who's going to come and change transport and change the world. And, you know, that's fine if that's what they want to believe. So the the deposit, as you say, it's more of an investment in him, I suppose, than I think they'd, they'd be pleasantly surprised if they ended up with a Cybertruck on their drive. But I don't think they would uh, kind of count on it. <laughs> and... Um... Why do you think there is this reverence towards Tesla? Because um, it's essentially, wh- whether you call them a car company or a tech company or a disruptor or whatever you want, they're a company. Um, I- I've had this discussion with people about F1 teams. People say, I'm a Mercedes fan through and through. I'm, I say, how can you, that's like being a Coca-Cola fan or a, uh, you know, um, a, a Harpic fan. You know, how, how can you be a fan of a corporate entity? Um, same thing with Tesla. W- what is it that draws people to them as if it's a religion or something? And it is, it is almost cult-like and like a religion. I mean, I suppose Elon Musk, he for some people, you know, they're like the fact he's not afraid to say what he thinks and he's always a bit left field, which I personally think is incredibly contrived and very well planned. 
but I suppose he is different and Tesla are doing different things compared to the more traditional manufacturers that he is he puts his money where his mouth is you know he says well I want to build a rocket and he goes and starts doing it you know whether or not that leaves a sort of abandoned trail of semi-finished projects is another matter but he does at least give things a go he, he acts like an overgrown kid you know he's basically what we would all like to do if we were billionaires like i'm going to build a truck but it's not going to look like a truck it's going to look like a toblerone and it's going to be silver and you're going to be able to shoot it like it's a bit like he's designing this whole virtual world for himself in which he just sort of rules over it all and people are drawn in by that it it's something different it's something that some people find very appealing it's you know it's bit of a phenomenon he, he, he is uh, in some ways the 2010s john delorean except he doesn't build dodgy factories in northern ireland that he can't pay for <laughs> yeah exactly um i suppose he's just got the most insane amount of money um he yeah he's he's an he's an interesting guy um but uh, i mean i don't know what to think of him it, it's hard to know what to think of someone like that and how much of it is just spin very clever spin and um but yeah he's got some rabid fans on online on twitter and things you know if you if you even type the word tesla into the search bar um with a slight bit of criticism they will come down on you like a ton of bricks hmm. but um on the on the other hand tesla has um forced the car industry to move forward with evs for, um, much further than it would have otherwise done uh, i guess one could argue that the nissan leaf would would, would exist if not for tesla anyway um but um would, would other car companies have followed quite so quickly with their designs if not for the fact that the tesla had made evs desirable all, all of a sudden yeah, I think that that's a good choice of word, desirable, I, because I do feel that manufacturers would be moving at a similar pace they are now in terms of you, it's kind of the that's the only thing they've got to do. They they can't they know that the current model just or business model isn't viable, so they've got to switch up to something. And I suppose they've all just landed on on electric on electrification. But I think Tesla has done a huge amount in making EVs seem desirable. But also normalizing them. So it's not just, you know, some mad hypercar that's naught to 60 in two seconds kind of thing. The Model 3s and things are fast, but they're also good cars. You know, people enjoy driving them as an everyday car rather than some sort of mystical fantasy vehicle that people just think, oh, it's not for them. You know, you see a Tesla parked on the street, and also at least their charging systems are widely available fast and that's the only one you need to use absolutely and um i was reading that the tesla model 3 is the third best-selling car in the uk that that's incredible for an ev isn't it yeah it's absolutely amazing um so given number one is the ford fiesta and has been for something like 12 years i think hmm. and you think about that in terms of its status it's a brilliant first car second car small family car but it's um you know it's just a fun reliable thing to drive whereas a tesla is much more a lifestyle statement it's expensive it's an investment and i suppose people now increasingly do want their car to reflect their lifestyle and their aesthetic so whereas a you know something like a, a, a fiesta or a focus or a, you know fiat 500 they're all great cars but they don't say they don't position you as, as a forward-thinking person. I think people who are adopting the the Teslas, they they you know they want to be actively seen to be doing something, to be to be those sort of those trendsetters. So, but yeah, I was incredibly surprised it was so high up the ranks. 
is there a little bit as well of uh, people who would be um, going out there and buying a Ford Focus or whatever, uh, keeping their money because they know that uh, people are going to going to be largely going EV in about five years anyway? Yeah, I'm I'm sure that has quite a lot to do with it. To be honest, I think people are yeah hanging on to their older cars for a little bit because because the technology is changing so quickly. If you think in just terms of like the range and how quickly the range of EVs has advanced in the past five years or so, it's massive. And same in terms of uh, cities' approach to diesel cars, petrol cars. So you know, with the with the ULEZ zone in London being introduced, I think people are wary and thinking, oh gosh, well maybe that's going to happen to me or to my city in a couple of years time so they don't want to be stuck with the kind of the halfway car where it's new and they spent an awful lot of money on it but they can't use it in certain places so they'd rather stick it out with what they've got at the moment the kind of if ain't broke um way of thinking and think okay but then in you know three years four years i'll be able to actually commit and uh and just go fully electric yeah and um but by the way, what what kind of a car do you have? Or, um, I guess you, I guess you have maybe more than one car right now, or um, uh, well, as, as your daily drive. I've um, I've just got the one car at the moment. Um, so I recently had to uh, buy a car. I'd been living in London and I had cars through work and things, but I didn't own one because I, I just didn't need to. Then my offices changed and it changed to a place where I could only realistically access it by car, so I needed to go and buy something. Um, I decided to set myself a budget of 500 quid and just buy something. I needed to get it done within a couple of days. So I ended up buying a 26-year-old Vauxhall Astra Saloon, um, which was uh, great for a couple of months. It worked and it drove and it was uh, people gave me amused looks as I pulled into work and into various <laughs> places. But um, uh, he was called Elvis, by the way, because uh, of his license plate. We had a great couple of trips together. But alas, his MOT was a couple of weeks ago and it was not good news. Um, so weighed up the pros and the cons. And very sadly, Elvis had to go to the, the big scrapyard in the sky, which I was very sad about. Um, so I've just very recently been incredibly brand disloyal and just got a little Vauxhall Corsa, the, um, the, the SR, what's oh, called the SRV or the VXI version or something like that. Okay. Um, but it's great. I like it. So it's, it's a nice little thing. It's cool. It's all black, black alloys, black windows. It's kind of a boy racer car and I like it. And, uh, do, does it have a massive subwoofer in the back? Not yet, but give me time. Right. right. <laughs> Um, because if, if our cars aren't allowed to make noise through the engine, then at least they can make noise through the stereo system, eh? Exactly. They've got to have something going on. Yeah. Um, and the stereo system brings me on to another conversation because um, obviously Tesla um, uh, brought this into the car market, really, and other car makers are now following because they think it's the right thing to do. I'm talking about the the massive touchscreen display. Um, I, I, was, I was in a Leaf last summer, um, as I've... Um, mentioned twice on this podcast and um, um, the the thing that I would say I most struggled with in that time was was the touchscreen display and working out how things work because they tried to produce an intuitive device but they'd done so without the know-how perhaps of well um, Android or Apple in terms of how to actually make a UI um, and is this something that car makers are going to struggle with for some time? The the fact that um, they want to build a UI, but they're car makers, not computer makers. I think absolutely. It's it's a really strange phenomenon, and it's one. It's a complaint you hear constantly. It can be 
uh, a Lamborghini, it can be a McLaren, it can be a Ford, it can be a Fiat. Every single car that I see reviewed, they come back with the same complaint. The infotainment system was fine, but it was glitchy or it let it down and or it just didn't work. There's always an issue. And it's weird that they persist in trying to make these incredibly complicated and increasingly complicated infotainment systems with all sorts of different sat nav and audio options and all this when they'd be just as well just using a button which doesn't break and you can feel that you've properly switched it like um if you want to change uh, the temperature it's much easier and more reliable to just have a little button that you twist and i i hope there will be a return to that because the the um the big screens are they're often ungainly they are distracting they are hard to use every single one appears to be different as well depending on which car you get in it's you know a completely different system um and it's frustrating because you think this this could be a good thing but you're just trying to make it too comp they're just trying to run before they can walk um mm. and yeah just sticking these increasingly massive screens right next to um right next to the steering wheel seems a unattractive and b just dangerous you cannot imagine how having a map that size right next to you is anything other than a distraction for the driver i don't understand how they're allowed to keep making them that size funnily enough the manufacturer that i think has done the best thing to combat this kind of um, driver attention bleed towards the screen is is hyundai because uh, on on their kona ev which i uh, had to look inside without being able to drive the other week um they have a head-up display alongside the screen so okay so, so the idea is you can put your head forward and um without looking down from the road you can see what speed you're doing what uh, you know um the the distance before you have to top up all that kind of stuff yeah, no, I think I think they're fantastic. They're um, I like the Kona very much. I became slightly too well acquainted with it though because uh, last year uh, I had to do twenty four hours in a Kona. We had no, was it twelve hours maybe? Twelve hours. Uh, 12 hours. Yeah, we had to do a rally, um, and it was like a sort of scatter rally. So you could go and check off various points by uh, you had to go to say Manchester to take a, fo- a photograph on the football ground or whatever. Um, but you could. And you could charge up as many times as you want, but the rule was you had to get back to the hotel within the 12 hours, and it was a night rally. Um, and you collected points for going to further locations, and it was brilliant fun and a really good test of how the car works, and it was a fantastic bit of kit. It was really, really nice to drive, but as usual, it was the the infrastructure that, um, that let us down, and by the end of it, uh, my partner Ed and I were about... I think a mile away from the hotel, we went properly into limp home mode until we just uh, trung- trundled to a stop and uh, had to get picked up by the uh, by the PR, who was very apologetic. And we were very tired because we'd been driving for 12 hours. Uh, by the way, I should point out that the voice you can hear off mic is probably Ed himself, isn't it? It is, yes. I have asked him to be quiet, but... Yeah, <laughs> no, it, it's fine, it's fine. keep chiming in. He's now it's... waiting. <laughs> Um, it's it's not that kind of podcast. I I found that people prefer podcasts where people are a bit informal anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> That's handy. Um, yeah, I, I've actually been trying to get guests to not be so buttoned up for ages, so it, it's 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 good it's good if people talk off mic. Don't worry. <laughs> good. 
<laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so th- the reason I came up with the uh, topic of the display is because uh, Tesla have at least tried to integrate this into the in- into the dashboard, so it looks like part of the car. With the Mustang Mark E, which we'll move on to now, um, the the internal display looks like an iPad with a hands-free kit to me. Um, why have Ford gone for that design solution rather than something actually flushed with flush with the car? It's a good question and one which I wish I could answer. Um, I think, I mean, I can only assume how many focus groups and different conversations led to that being the final design. Um it's hard to know personally. Yeah, I, I don't feel it sits particularly well with the rest of the design language, but uh, we can only go, I suppose, on what we are told that people want. It's a bit like the whole, you know, people keep saying, oh, we really want EVs, we really want to drive electric and drive um, carbon neutral or low carbon cars, and yet people keep buying SUVs. So I'm not sure if it's people say, oh, yeah, we definitely want super high-tech cars. We want them to be connected and have great big screens. And then they get them and think, oh, actually, but that is a bit much, isn't it? It's a bit big. So it's it's an impossible thing to um, to cater for everyone. But, yeah, it's it's certainly a bold statement. And I suppose that's what the car was intended to be. It's, you know, it's controversial in many ways. People, some people are happy about the Mustang name being included. Some people aren't. But it's, um, the whole design of the car is meant to be very modern very futuristic so i suppose that explains its its inclusion there of the screen but yeah personally i would have you know made it half the size Hmm. because um the 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 mustang mark e for those who don't know um is ford's i think first entry into the uh all-electric market is it not uh, it's not completely. So a couple of years ago, I think about a decade ago, we did have a little electric focus, which was very, very limited uh, manufacturing run. But we still we have one on our heritage fleet, actually. Hmm. Um, and they're great little things. So this isn't our first ever, but it's our first um, recent and certainly our first performance electric vehicle. Okay. And um, why did Ford, um, I'm asking you like you're a spokesperson for Ford or something, but um, why do you imagine Ford decided to start with a premium performance SUV rather than, say, a new electric Focus or something? I suppose it's about making an impact because there are already some fantastic EVs out there, the Kona, the Leaf, the Zoe, all doing their jobs really, really well. But I suppose for a company like Ford, which is very traditional and people think they know us very well, it's very reliable and a safe choice. I suppose we wanted to, A, remind people that, hey, we've also got Mustang. You know, this is, you know, we're cool as well. But to then use that opportunity to launch ourselves fully into the kind of EV game by just going, you know, pedal pedal to the floor, saying we're not going to introduce, okay, we've got hybrids and all sorts, but nice to just boldly kind of leap onto the world stage saying yeah we've got electric vehicles but have an electric mustang you know it's just um you know it's a it's a big bold statement in an increasingly crowded market i suppose you've got to do something that makes you stand out okay because uh, curtis moldrich from car magazine tweeted that he thought that uh, electric mustang suv was uh, was an exercise in search engine and optimization which i thought was quite funny at the time. <laughs> I can definitely see where he's coming from. They do sound like a bunch of words that shouldn't quite fit together, but <laughs> it's um, you know, it's it's had popular, it's it's been popular so far as far as we're aware. I've seen it in the flesh um, a couple of times. It's a great looking thing, uh, and hopefully it'll be very popular. But again, it just goes back to the idea that uh, people 
want what people say they want clean safe sensible cars but they also want massive suvs and they want a mustang so which, which, is, which is something Neil Hudson was talking about on um, um, in, in his last post um, on his medium, how um, touring cars used to used to be relatable because people bought the sort of car that touring cars were. But uh, now people aren't buying midsize saloons. They're buying SUVs, which are terrible for motorsport. Uh, the Jaguar I-Pace possibly accepted. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, wh- why, why is it that people are buying SUVs and... Um, wh- is is it possible to wean people off SUVs into a car that's less draggy and has a better range and better performance, do you think? I sincerely hope so. I find the obsession with SUVs utterly baffling. I don't know if it's... I mean, actually, no, it is. It's a fairly British thing. When I've been in France and Spain and various places, you see them, but they are much more drawn to city cars small compact cars and you know multi-people vehicles and that sort of thing but with the brits we're just obsessed with having these big chunky cars i suppose because we are so tied up with class and money and uh, appearances and all that sort of stuff that we always want to have a, a slightly better car that we can necessarily afford so whereas a focus would do your car's job perfectly well why not get a Range Rover you know it, it's a weird thing that people don't need them but it's become such a statement to have an SUV you know as sort of a, a Chelsea tractor um, and I, I don't know how easy it'll be to to wean people off them now car financing is you know so easy to get that you know a 22 year old whatever can walk in and walk out the same day with a Range Rover and some potentially crippling debt but <laughs> uh, it's all an image thing it, it, as far as I'm aware it's it's just that people don't really care how they drive you know people who really like driving don't tend to buy SUVs in my experience so um, how, how will this pan out for motorsport in the next few years? Because we, we are running out of um, high-selling road cars that can become racing cars. That's true. Um, I suppose oh, it's kind of reflective of motorsport as a whole in terms that it, it is having to adapt to the industry and to the market and to the participants. So, so a couple of years, well, it's still going, but until recently, the most affordable way of getting into motorsport was um, the the two C, the Citroen 2CV series, which was great fun and, uh, you know, they were relatively easy to come by, a bit of a laugh, but now that's become too expensive. So now it's a Citroen C1 Cup, which is, you know, again, an affordable way of, of getting into it. But uh, it's um, it's hard to know where it'll go. I think people are increasingly turning away from just track-based sports because they are becoming, in some ways, a bit dull because all the cars are kind well, they're all similar um, and the money being thrown at it is all just eye-watering. So people are moving into things like uh, autocross and, and uh, into all sort of stage rallying and that kind of thing where mm. they can actually associate on some level with the vehicles rather than looking at you know an f1 car and thinking well that's a spaceship i think people want to be they want to engage in the cars that are being used or with the cars that are being used yeah this yeah this is this is true i guess and um 
perhaps that will play into the hands of uh, series like the Dakar Rally, for example, and like like Raid series, because you know uh, those those cars are based on the SUVs that people want to buy as uh, as much as they are incredibly souped up with uh, huge wheels. But uh, so uh, so so for example, you know um, the the Toyota Land Cruiser or equivalent um, are there, and uh, so perhaps we'll just see more series like that where they go on serious challenges. Um, um, Extreme E, I guess, is the uh, electric equivalent of that. Although the the aim is also to draw attention to um, troubled parts of the world, which could be affected by climate change, and uh, so they're doing it on an incredibly sort of um, sh- shall we shall we say shall we say low maintenance uh, basis. They're putting everything on a boat, and um, they're trying not to use fossil fuels as far as possible when they go to places. Um, ha- have you caught any of the buzz for Extreme E? Do you have any opinion about it? I don't know much about it, but I have seen, I think it was Extreme E anyway, um, some of the cars that they're producing, um, which just look insane. Uh, mm. I'm pretty sure there was one at, at the Paris E-Prix when I went there. Um, I think it's yeah, a great thing to be doing because, again, it shows the diversity and the capability of electric vehicles and the fact that anything you know, uh, an ICE can do, an ICE vehicle can do, the electric cars can do, but just a bit better in many ways. It's, um, yeah, just good to be getting them into another area of motorsport, I think. You know, they've done they've done so well with Formula E. Why not go to the other end of the spectrum and do sort of desert racing? Well, absolutely. And, and shout out to a series that I've mentioned before on this podcast, the, the Smart for Two Italia Cup, I think it's called, which uh, which races EV versions of, of, of the Smart for Two, the original smart car. Brilliant. And, um, it, it is the funniest thing to watch. Uh, you, you, you have to go and see it if you possibly can. Absolutely. That sounds fantastic. I love that kind of stuff. Um, a couple of friends and I are working towards going into the Citroen C1 Cup. Uh, we're hoping to race next year. We've got the car and thing, just fixing it up. But anything which has such big grids with such tiny little cars is always <laughs> fantastic to watch. It's just chaos as people just spin off within seconds, but at such a slow, slow pace. It's, oh, it's fantastic. I love that kind of thing. It, it, it's exactly like a real-life Gran Turismo open lobby with a Honda Civic or something, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. It's like wacky races. It's great. It's great stuff. Yeah. Do, do you play any video games, by the way? Um, I play Forza. So I recently got uh, an Xbox having... So we, Ford, were involved with Forza um, Horizon 4 quite heavily. Um, brilliant looking in game. Terms of having the, it's a brilliant game. So uh, we, ha- we, we launched the Raptor, the Ranger Raptor, at uh, a gaming convention in Germany, which was one of the first cars, I think the first car to ever be launched um, at a gaming event. Uh, so and we did a lot of work with, with Forza. Uh, and I've played it a couple of times at various events and loved it so much that I ended up just buying it. So uh, that's kind of the only game I play, but it's it's genuinely enough for me i absolutely love it um absolutely gorgeous renderings of a sort of ideal version of the uk as well aren't they yes i was well, sort of weird so i'm from uh scotland near edinburgh originally so i love driving around there but then weirdly i also spent a lot of my childhood in the lake district where there's another section so for me it just feels a bit like a little tour of my childhood i love it yeah and um if if the if the Mustang Mark E were in the game, uh, would would you see that as being in the performance section or the off road section? Ooh, I like to think a bit of both, but um, I suppose it's a bit like the Range Rover. The Range Rover SVR slightly falls into that category too. Mm. But um, with the Mark E, I suppose it's not got quite the ground clearance, but I suppose it would fit in fairly well to any of them. 
But I'm, I'm so fascinated with how perceptions of cars change because w- when they first released the launch photos of, of, of the Mach-E, I, I, I looked at it and I thought, this is a car for somebody else. This, this is an EV to appease people in their 50s. Uh, <laughs> And, and then I looked at it again and again, and I wrote an article about it last week for my Patreon. And um, by the way, uh, if you go to patreon.com and search for Motion E, um, you're very welcome to uh, subscribe, uh, listeners, anything from $1 a month, and you get to read the articles. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, that's the last advert you'll get on this podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, and I was looking at it again, and I thought, you know, this doesn't look so bad. Um, is this just a gradual process where cars look unbelievably ugly to begin with and then we grow used to them? And will this happen with the Cybertruck eventually? Quite possibly. I suppose the Cybertruck is quite an extreme end of the scale, but I quite possibly, yes. I mean, when you look at how genteel a lot of old car design was you know in the 60s 70s less so in the 80s but and a bit okay good example being the the old mini the 60s mini and the new mini um like how used we're so used to seeing the new mini around these days you know we see it as quite a nice small perfectly well designed car but you put it next to an old mini and you think that is a gargantuan (laughs) swollen bulbous looking car but we just get so used to it that that becomes the norm and same with i suppose the fiat 500 compared to the original cinquecento again Mm. we think of the cinquecento the fiat 500 as a tiny little thing and then you stick it next to the original and looks like it's eaten one um so in terms of yeah i suppose cars are becoming increasingly uh, they feel they need to be bold all the time so you look at the nissan duke which is incredibly popular car Mm. i mean i personally think it's unbelievably ugly but then people some people thought about the audi tt when it first came out and yeah you do just eventually things either grow on you or just become normalized so yeah it's it's a good point i don't know what will come to be the new norm and if if they just called this the ford grand tourer or some some something uh, something more neutral uh, would you say people would not be talking about it quite so much and that actually as, as much as a lot of the uh, audience for these pictures and for this launch has been negative about the use of the Mustang name, which is a premium sports brand with loud, roarty engines. Is that the way to get people interested in EVs, do you think, ultimately? Yeah, absolutely. I suppose it's drawing in an entirely new crowd because people who are already keen to buy an EV, they're, you know, they've got their options, they're weighing them up, but it's it's... It takes a lot more to convert someone who is a committed driver, you know, who sues himself as a, as a car person, as a petrol head. So by using the Mustang name, we're automatically grabbing their attention. Okay, as you say, it might be negative to begin with, but they're still talking about it. They're still thinking about it. And it's it's showing that an EV doesn't have to be a genteel, sensible choice. You know, you can still have that, that muscle car look and performance, but it can just be powered by a battery. Hmm. Um, I, I saw Ford versus Ferrari a couple of weeks ago, um, or Le Mans 66, depending on what part of the world you're in, and um, an absolutely uh, beautifully filmed film. Um, some of the racing scenes were a bit unconvincing, but uh, the, the, the scenes where they're going around the car, uh, describing the detailing of the car, to me seemed completely convincing, and uh, although... Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody style, they mangled some of the facts to make Carol Shelby seem slightly better than maybe he was at the time. <laughs> yes. Um, 
I mean, what, what did you think of Ford versus Ferrari? I loved it. I mean, I was... I think I was always going to love it. I remember the first time I saw the um, trailer. I think it was actually before I'd even started working for Ford. But it's a story I've always loved. And, you know, it's it's got to be up there, my top five motorsport moments. That, that you know, they're all the kind of, oh, just go back and tell them to go like hell. And Enzo Ferrari being typically Enzo and just sort of <laughs> reneging on deals. There's so many different elements to it. So I was going in with a very positive expectation of just wanting to enjoy looking at old cars on a cinema screen but I was pleasantly surprised by how in, like genuinely engaging it was. It was the kind of film I think you could have enjoyed if you weren't particularly knowledgeable or, or, or into the backstory. Um, there were, a, obviously, you know, there's a couple of inaccuracies, but they can't cover everything. No, no film can. But uh, it was interesting the way that Ford <laughs> came out because obviously we won and it was all great, but uh, we didn't necessarily come out as the most uh, most caring and mm. uh, passionate of companies, I suppose. We came out as quite quite staid and corporate, and but you know that's it's it's horses for courses. It's you know Ford's never going to be Ferrari, so um, no point pretending otherwise. But yeah, I loved it as a film, absolutely but fantastic. In in some ways, they were the first monolithic corporation to exist. Well, perhaps along with GM, uh, within within motoring, they they were the first company to get that big by making cars, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely, and they did it incredibly well. And as a company, yes, it's sort of always just been there. It's such a uh, a solid representation of of progress and of industry and of manufacturing. Um, but yeah, it, it's you know people have there's Ford families and there's people who've made the, the company their whole, it, their whole life. And yeah, it's, it's a pretty, pretty monolithic uh, entity, as you say. Yeah. And, and we, we could, we could easily carve up the film and say, well, that was convincing that that was not true, that kind of thing. But um, ult- ultimately um, it, it taught me some lessons about how Ford might have worked internally at the time and, and, how, and, and how it might work internally now, because um, c- companies don't change as much as they would like to think over the years. I, I, I learned this from um, once having worked at Microsoft. When Microsoft came in and took over Skype, uh, they brought in some management practices that maybe some people didn't fully understand or appreciate or both. And um, uh, they they were, shall we say, massive corporation management practices, not uh, mid-sized tech company management practices. Think Things like, well, things I can't talk about again, but um, <laughs> I, I saw this in Ford versus Ferrari as well. Um, things like how Carol Shelby didn't have a direct report to the CEO. He was reporting to, you know, the, the chief exec, the chief executive yeah. vice president, that kind of thing. Yeah. So... Um, this this rang a bell with me in many ways and I'm wondering is this the reason why we've got a car which is half a Mustang and half an SUV and maybe a little bit of performance EV as well because it's it's not the work like the Tesla of a small team that gets you know kicked into doing something this is this is the work of a massive focus group like you say isn't it yeah, and I suppose that's why, in some ways, it could be considered a bit of a bit of a camel kind of yeah, everything designed by committee. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's a tough one to answer. You know, I don't know how much I can or should say, but it's it's one of those cars which has a bit of something for everyone, 
and perhaps in trying to do that does miss out on providing everything for one person which is sometimes what you need to to build an effective product but but, but uh, if um, if you're still not convinced listening to this, uh, go and watch the Ford Motor Company's YouTube channel because um, that they've come up with some really you know bitingly honest presentations about the development of the car um, and how their um, uh, company test driver took it out around the track and got out and said that's not a Mustang and they basically <laughs> had to go back to the drawing board for months and make it more like a Mustang. So it, it, it's not like they've just slapped the badge on something. They have worked really hard to make it seem like a performance car, haven't they? Oh, absolutely. You know, I don't think that was ever, they never wanted to compromise that. You know, you can't just stick, yes, stick a horse on the front and call it a Mustang. We have to convince not only the the new converts to, to the brand, but also the diehard fans who, you know, they've got their their muscle their muscle car tattoos and everything. We we can't uh, we can't abuse the name of something that is so important to so many people. So yeah, the the intention was or is to make a to make a seriously fun car to drive, just slightly quieter. Hmm. And coming back to the Fiat 500, uh, we, we had the new 500, which was very much a kind of bloated replica of the old one. Um, yeah. it, it, it looks lovely. Um, it's, I think, the number one car for PR agents around the world. But um, then they came up with the Fiat 500 Grande, which was, um, I, I mean, it, it, in a way, calling it the 500 is misleading because it's not a 500cc engine anyway. But... Um, are we going now that we've got things like the 500 grand a and like the mini countryman and so on are, are we going a bit overboard by constantly talking about the spirit of the original car and does it actually matter um if if it's got the spirit of the mustang does it need to look like a mustang from the 60s basically i'm asking oh, that's a good point <sighs> i suppose when it's something as I hate using this word, but as iconic as something like a Mini or a Fiat 500 or a Mustang, you can't. I don't feel that you can completely disregard the design because that is something that has been, you know, almost canonized in the car world. People, who, you know, they the Mini and the Cinquecento became icons for their whole country. And in a way, yeah, the Mustang has for America um, in terms of the, the muscle car scene. So to completely ignore the design cues, I think is unfair because then what you take, if you're just taking the name, what what does that do? You, you could do that and stick it on a, a hatchback if you really wanted to. But, uh, it, you know, it, it's a car that, yeah, it can't be all things to all people, but it'll be interesting to see what the pickup is when it's actually, you know, starts being sold and delivered by people who were already Mustang fans. It'll be interesting to see what the breakdown is of people who are coming to the car and the brand completely fresh and those who are already very enthusiastic Mustang owners. It'll be interesting to see perhaps someone having like a, you know, a Shelby 66 and a Mach-E. A couple of other things before we go that I wanted to um, ask you about. One is, you know, um, because of your experience with major car brands and particularly Ford, do you get any insight into why it is that Volkswagen has taken quite so long to roll out these EV concept cars into full-fledged ID uh, production cars? The the ID3 is coming in 2020, but we've been promised a microbus for years now. Um, why is it taking so long? Oh, I suppose Volkswagen is you know in the same way that ford is it it's a, it's a massive company that becomes an entity so getting anything done takes 
a long time. I think it's difficult with stuff like EVs because they're such an unknown quantity. We may think, okay, we've nailed it. We know we've got the prototype. It's fantastic. It's ready to go. But then translating that into any sort of scale is is an almost impossible and endless task because you you know you, we spent years optimizing uh, production lines for ICE vehicles to then suddenly expect those same production lines to be creating something completely different takes a lot longer than I think anyone realized and Volkswagen and I I suspect are learning that and it's also difficult when it's been something that's so visible and that the fact that they gave themselves dates like it's all very good to say right we're having an ev and it's going to be here in the next five years or so that's okay give yourself a bit of leeway but when you start naming years it becomes difficult because yeah then people keep saying well you said it was going to be here this year and then it's it's now two years late and yeah i think it's probably just a case of trying to translate a perfectly good prototype into something viable and scalable Saying that, and I don't have exact figures in front of me because, uh, well, um, why would I have done done research before before doing this <laughs> podcast? Hey, but um, I believe the e-Golf is currently in the mid thirty thousands in terms of cost for UK buyers. Okay, and um, I also believe that um, it's coming down in price, or at least I, I know it is in European markets. Anyway, it's coming down in price next year when when the ID three comes out. Uh, because um, as it was put to me by a VW dealer in Estonia, where I am at the moment, uh, there's no point in having an e-Golf that's more expensive than the ID3. So um, in some ways, this is this is good, um, that, um, isn't it? That we've got a desirable EV coming out in the ID3 that looks a bit cool and a bit space age and is also made cheaply enough to drive down the prices of competitors. Um, is this something that we'll see more widely, you think? what the competitive pricing kind of having to reflect um... because um th th there's there's no reason in your average car buyer's mind why they should spend you know thirty three thousand pounds on a family hatchback for example unless they're a diehard ev buyer sure oh definitely i mean well that's one thing that's very interesting about cybertruck is that obviously these prices are fairly speculative at the moment but i think the very base model has been discussed or has been pitched at about $38,000 which seems like you're getting a lot of vehicle uh, for mm. for that kind of money because the yeah the problem with the EVs is that they are seriously expensive and obviously there's not a huge market for them secondhand at the moment and people are concerned about battery life and all that kind of stuff so at the moment it, it does feel like it's it's the luxury for for um for the well-off motorist and that again leads to some resentment i feel that it's becoming a bit of oh them and us it's a bit like people who say oh well why don't you buy organic and free range and the person <laughs> says well because, because it costs twice as much that's why and i don't have that kind of money so I think, yeah, the pricing does need to be looked at. Obviously, as we get into higher volumes, the pricing will come down, or at least you hope so. Um, and the fact that we are launching, various manufacturers are launching the, the luxury uh, electric vehicles in, you know, Jaguar have done it, and we've done it at Ford, then you hope that will have the knock-on effect of having the entry level, sort of smaller models, at a more attainable price because they're hopefully making their margins up on those bigger, the high, higher-end cars. Um, but again, as the, hopefully as the second-hand market grows, that should also help people out a bit because at the moment I was, before I bought my little um, Corsa, I, I was genuinely thinking about electric vehicle. I was looking at things like a, a Zoe because... 
uh, I don't go very far each day. I could charge to work, you know, on many, many levels it would work for me. But ultimately it just came down to the cost. I just didn't have enough money. I couldn't really justify that kind of expense. And I know you've got a major bee in your bonnet about the UK charging infrastructure, which is my last topic. Um, uh, why, why is the charging infrastructure in parts of the UK so far behind um, other European countries of the same size, do you think? Oh, I don't know, because I think I think we as Brits are obsessed with appearances, as I mentioned with the SUV. So it's a bit like we're running before we can walk. We're so desperate to get all these cool, exciting EVs on the road. We've not really thought about what we're then going to do with them and how we're going to power them. Again, easy for some people who um, who have driveways and can get various different plugs and stuff fitted. But for the average person, that's not an option. So it's just my few experiences with EVs have every single one of them has been marred by a charging issue and it's not like that's the end of the world but it's just the fact it's happened every single time with cars that are meant to be the future so it's either a problem with the payment system or you know it's taken half an hour to do three percent when it said it would do to ten percent kind of thing um and so for the few experiences I've had, I have been fortunate enough that I've been at my parents' house and been able to plug into their electricity and get the car going again. But it's just that frustration of having to plan your whole life around the car when it should be the other way around, because you're having to rely on such an unknown quantity. You know, you get all these apps and stuff and zap map and stuff, which say, mm. OK, there's four charges free here. And then you get there and two of them aren't working and you've got 10 minutes to, you know, to fill up. and. Yeah, a lot needs to be done there. And the payment systems are annoying too. Well, um, the payment system is something I've never used because uh, I've never tested an EV in the UK. Um, if any offers would be gratefully, gratefully received, uh, car manufacturers. But um, the, the thing is, I, it seems to me a bit like accessing free Wi-Fi because um, if I go into a shopping centre in Estonia... Um, you can access the Wi-Fi by signing into the Wi-Fi and usually there's something saying you agree to the terms and conditions and then you're on. Um, I went into the, um, what's it called? The one in Stratford, the big shopping centre. Oh, Westfield. Westfield. Yeah. yeah. Went into Westfield and um, they made they made me sign pretty much a, you know, 12 part form with, uh, <laughs> you know, my, my date of birth, uh, why I'm signing into the Wi-Fi, uh, you know, family members, telephone number. I'm thinking... <laughs> Who reads this stuff? And yeah. um, w w why is it that um, everything takes so long to sign into? And also, is it like that when you're charging up an EV? Do you have to do that kind of thing? Yeah. Oh, it's so frustrating. So you've got to make sure that you have downloaded the app for whichever one you're using. Um, and then you have to register your card, which means putting your details into the app. And then, you know, it's usually a confirmation email and signing in, signing out again. Um, so it's every single time it's convoluted. And then sometimes the app isn't working. And there's all, you know, there's, there are a couple now. I forget the name of the of the brand to have it where you can just tap your debit card and go and you're, and you're fine. Hmm. Eastfault. Instavault. Instavault is the one which, yes, you literally turn up, tap your card and, and you're away. But mm -hmm. The vast majority of them, it requires either yeah a special app, a special card, and some of them you have to pay a subscription service. So even if you're not using it, you've not touched the app, you've not opened it, you've not paid for any electricity, you're still paying ten pounds a month, which is absolutely ridiculous. So imagine if Shell did that, 
there'd be outrage. It's, you know, sorry, that's £10 for just existing and coming nowhere mm. near petrol stations. It's, it's just a really frustrating thing to not be getting right yet. And I don't understand why we can't hit the nail on the head with something that should be simple. By, by the way, I, I talked to a chap at Shell at uh, Formula E testing in Valencia and um, he wasn't willing to go into uh, con- consumer services or mainstream charging. He was he was very much talking about um, the lubricants that they put in the Formula E cars. But uh, what, what, what's what's your experience of the big garages? How, how are they how are they adapting to there being more EVs? Um, are, are you seeing enough chargers in in like the shells and SOs of this world? It's a good point. I, I suppose I should be looking out for them more. Um, yeah, th- th- I'm just thinking of the, the few garages around me. There are a few EV points, but they're usually full, to be honest. Um, mm. uh, yeah, I suppose something that I've noticed which is good is uh, the companies which are uh, renting land from businesses you know, restaurants, pubs kind of things, to put their charging points there and the business is getting a share of the profit. So it's a good thing for smaller businesses to be doing to attract people along, um, getting a bit of money from it, but also increasing the options for people who need to charge their cars. Because, you know, a petrol station is great if you're there for five minutes. You go in, fill up your car with your your petrol, buy a coffee and you're out. You know, they're not particularly fun interesting places to linger so i think it's good that we are diversifying into places to charge your car where you actually want to spend that half an hour so a cafe um there's a a few around sort of various uh parks and reservoirs near where i live here so it's it's nice that we're expanding the network away from just a petrol station and you know i mean that's the beauty of an electric charger you can kind of put them anywhere within reason they don't need all these complicated um tankers and things like that so it's nice that and something i hope we see more of like is putting charging points in as destinations somewhere you'd be happy to spend half an hour so sorry to be completely out of touch on this uh, does little chef still exist um i th- i think it does i still occasionally see them roadside hmm. but i've not been to one for years very no, reference and, and the, the little chef breakfast is very much oh, the, yeah. the 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 last bastion of um of you know fried bread and the runny egg isn't it but yeah um, Olympic breakfast <laughs> And I, I know that um, even, you know, 15 years ago when they invited Heston Blumenthal in, they were struggling. So sh- surely EV charging could be their way out, couldn't it? Well, absolutely. Yeah. So more of that sort of thing would be great. It's just it's a really easy, a really easy thing to do, which costs the, the business owner almost nothing. And they end up making money from it. It's, you know, a way to attract new, usually fairly affluent customers to to whatever you're doing and that, you know, invariably going to come in, use a loo, have a, a cup of tea and be on their way. But, yeah, it's about getting people through the door, I suppose. It seems like something I'm surprised not not as many businesses have taken up yet as I expected, but hopefully that'll, that'll grow and change. Okay, well, um, Poppy, we'll just uh, round up by uh, saying where we can find you. So uh, if, if people want to read your, um, well, if people want to uh, tweet you, first of all, what's what's your Twitter handle? So rather predictably, it is uh, at GTO Poppy. Well, as in Ferrari GTO. Yes, exactly. That's pretty good, actually. Um, it's a more imaginative handle than mine anyway. But uh, um, and uh, what kind of things are you tweeting about or, uh, you know, writing about on social media at the moment? 
Um, at the moment, it's. I mean, my main love is has always been classic cars. So it's, uh, it's that sort of stuff. It, yes, it's classic cars. It's my fairly terrible jokes and uh, life at Ford and how uh, how uh, the car industry is changing. Uh, thank you so much for coming on anyway and um, where can we read your uh, long form writing uh, so the best place to do that is um, on the Telegraph website and occasionally in print so if you go on to the uh, Telegraph uh, motoring page the cars page those are great we have a newsletter and uh, on Facebook there is the Telegraph motoring group which is really really great fun it's just a lot of people talking uh, talking about cars and it can get rather heated at times so it's always interesting to, to be a part of and don't worry we, we keep politics out of it so it's everyone's welcome if you want to join that then um just find us on facebook and i can add you as a member super well um poppy mckenzie smith thank you for talking to us and uh, hopefully have you on again for a future discussion uh, thank you so much no, you're very welcome it's been lovely to chat thank you for listening to the e-talking podcast This is the last edition of 2019, and in 2020, we'll have plenty more fun and plenty more guests, including an account of the upcoming Santiago E3 in Formula E. So, stay tuned for that, and thank you for listening. Goodbye.